This is episode 49 of the Get In My Garden podcast. This is Aaron Moskowitz, and today we meet Ed Williams, creator of the Lair Garden, L-E-H-R, which is an acronym for the system he has created that includes elements of aquaponics, hugel culture, composting, mushrooms, the soil, food web, and basically as many natural components as possible. He is an engineer, after all. Ed is very interesting to listen to as he describes his backyard systems, shares his engineering wisdom, and talks about the backyard farm he has created from start to finish. Ed's vision is for a more involved and healthy human interaction with the foods we eat, with fewer labor hours and much greater ecological and social benefit. Towards the end of the episode, he shares his calculations about carbon sequestration and his ideas for remodeling the suburban landscape norms. Follow the show at Get In My Garden on Instagram to see pictures of what we discuss here and to hear about upcoming episodes. Also visit GetInMyGarden.com and make sure to sign up for the email list, which will soon include supplemental and special content or freebies, as well as articles or other interesting things I share with my close friends. I hope you will subscribe to the Get In My Garden podcast wherever you listen from and leave a positive review if you want to support the show. Really interested in what you're doing. You have such beautiful pictures of your work in your yard on Instagram. And I didn't really know what a, a layer garden is. So do you want to introduce yourself and then tell us a little bit about what it is and what you're doing? Okay. So yeah, layer garden, it's actually not surprising that you haven't uh, heard much about it yet. It's something that I've invented and I've been working on developing. I've actually been doing it about six years now. The pictures that you've seen on my Instagram are, are just, uh, you know, my, my second generation prototype that I'm I'm working on building out working on heavier on aesthetics and functionality and size over over my first generation prototype. But uh, basically what it is, is it was the simple, the oversimplified version of it is that it's kind of like aquaponics, but with soil. Now, the problem with doing soil and aquaponics, and, and a big part of the reason that you, core canon, if you will, of aquaponics is that you can't do it with soil is that because if you dump good fertile soil that you're going to be able to grow your plants in into aquaponics, a lot of the nutrients that are that the plants need are actually water-soluble. And so they will dissolve straight up into the water. Uh, the water will get cloudy. The water will get dirty. You'll get uh, what's known as BOD, biological oxygen demand. So the bacteria in the water will, will flourish on this heavy influx of uh, nitrogen, uh, among, other, among other nutrients. And the, the BOD, the, the O being oxygen, um, they start to take the oxygen out of the water and you get a, a big fish die off. Mm-hmm. And the way I overcome that is um, I actually make the, the soil balance in concert with the water. So the soil, when I add it, is not soil. Um, I add maybe up to 20% compost. I actually prefer just a little bit less than that. The rest of it's all organic matter, mostly woody organic matter. Huh. I saw on your uh, Instagram, uh, Aaron, that you uh, you like mushrooms as well. And mushrooms is one of the big tools that I use to make that work. That is so cool. So, yeah, thanks. <laughs> it, it, it's something I've, I've been growing mushrooms for about 15 years now, and it's there's, there's so much cool things that you can do with it. But there's a couple of different things that the mushrooms bring to the table in a system like this. The first is the body of a mushroom, the mycelium, works basically like a big filter. So the, the mushrooms are particularly aggressive about grabbing any nutrients that flow past them. It's a big giant net. And so the, the mushrooms actually help the absorption of uh, nutrients from the water to help the filtration. They also get into the woody material and start breaking it down. So I'm using a little bit like Hugel culture techniques, uh, which is burying large chunks of wood in your soil, but I'm doing it in concert with the mushroom growing. And are you also, is it all connected so that the, the water and fish system is connected to the mushroom system in real time? Correct. Yes. Okay. That's so cool. Yeah, but let me let me talk just a little bit more about the about the soil, but then I'll I'll, I'll jump into kind of the, the structure. Great. The mushrooms get into the woody material now because it's large. I've got a, a good mix of of small uh, like sawdust and wood chip type material, but but also a lot of branches. And if I have a system that I'm going to be growing for a while, I'll actually throw logs in it if I've got soil that's deep enough. 
and that'll give the, the mushrooms a lot of time to work on the material you'll get you'll give them a, a safe place here here in phoenix uh, arizona summertime temperatures are highly con not conducive to growing mushrooms outdoors but if you give them a safe place uh inside a log for example to live and grow uh then they can actually live through the summer in a protected location and i've had them you know, live through the, the first year I did it, I, I planted a bunch of spent mushroom logs in my garden thinking they would just work on decomposing. And then fall rolled around, cool temperatures set in, and I started getting mushrooms. That's great. That was the first sign that really I, I was onto something pretty cool. So the, the mushrooms work on breaking down the woody material. Um, then the earthworms come behind them and they consume what's left. Uh, and then you start building a really a, a soil ecosystem that really does a phenomenal job of not just supporting the plants but also filtering the water. So uh, talking a little bit about the the structure of the system, um, LEAR is actually an acronym. It means short for linking ecosystem and hardware for regeneration. The reason I think that particular piece is important is if you look at a lot of people are recognizing that agriculture, industrial agriculture as we're currently practicing it is fairly broken. It's it's not a system that's going to be sustainable for a long time. It's actively using up soil. It's actively destroying ecosystems. It's actively taking the carbon out of the soil and putting it into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are looking at how to fix that problem. It's, it's something that li literally millions of people worldwide are trying to find the best way to come up with something better and have been for several decades now. You have holistic management, you have permaculture, you have agroforestry, uh, you have hydroponics, you have aquaponics. These are all methods to try and come up with a better way of, of producing food. But one of the things that almost all of the, all of the people operating in this space are doing is they come up with either the option that nature is the problem, all diseases and pests come from nature, therefore we need to get nature out of the system, which is where you get hydroponics, aquaponics, aeroponics, that sort of thing. Uh, vertical indoor farming are all designed to specifically exclude as much nature as possible from the growing process. And then you have the people who say that, that technology is the problem, that industrial agriculture uses a lot of technology and that's, that's a lot of the problem, and, and thus we need to get back to nature and they try and you have uh, and that would be like permaculture and holistic management and agroforestry and, and techniques like that 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 are that are designed to use the natural processes in a healthy way uh -huh. what i'm doing that's different from those is i'm saying it doesn't have to be either or we can really do we can use the technology as a labor saving device um, and bring them the healthy nutrient channeling aspects of a natural system and we can use them in concert and, and that's the part that i haven't seen a lot of out there and, and i think to me uh, the really important part of, of making that work is to understand the appropriate roles uh, we tend to use technology to replace human labor which i think is a helpful way of doing mm -hmm. it. but we also use the technology to replace natural processes which i think is not helpful the natural processes every organism that we've got has evolved in concert with those natural processes and functions best working in the environment that it that evolved to work in and so if we can use the technology to reduce human labor and then use the biology to you basically use the technology to enhance and accelerate biological processes, you get something that actually works really, really well. That is so awesome. It's literally perfect for the mission of what I've been trying to do with the podcast because so many people I know, they're just doing, they're using natural farming methods, which are amazing, like you said, but they're also not really thinking of how to streamline it with technology. So I definitely believe if we're going to fix our problems, we've got to use both. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that, you know, a little bit, perhaps a, a titch off topic here, but, you know, one of the things that uh, as we try and create a, a functional society that's going to work with and not destroy the natural system that we rely on for life, um, we need to be a part of, 
a part of our food production, a part of our ecosystem, and making sure that the ecosystem processes are all over there and we live over here in the, the civilized world is, I think, maybe the wrong way to do it. And so we need to bring some of these labor-saving devices into the process so that we can have the human beings doing what's appropriate for humans, which is managing the system. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily need people out there watering by hand every day and, and weeding and, you know, doing all of these things that we can, we can really have the machines do. Well, even your systems. And so you're living in an area where nobody would want to be a farmer, honestly, like outdoors all day. That's impossible. Right. Cause it's just so damn hot most of the year. So can you, yeah, I just can't believe that people are doing that. And so can you describe what you'd see in your backyard, like someone who isn't going to have a chance to go online and look at it? And then also how much time that takes and what, what your involvement is? Okay. So in, in, in my backyard, back to the, back to kind of the hardware. So it's designed to be it, functionality wise, uh, equipment wise, it's, it's fairly similar to uh, aquaponics. Mm-hmm. So you have, in, in my case, I have an upper tank and a sump tank. And the, 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 there's a pump in the sump tank that runs on a timer um, every three hours. Well, actually, well, I'll, I'll get into the timing later, probably not at all. But periodically, the, the water pumps from the sump tank up into the upper tank. And the, as the water fills up in the upper tank, it overtops, it, it runs up through a pipe that runs, pours the water into, it's actually a compost bin. Um, and I'll get to the compost bin in a, in a minute and what it does. Um, but then from there, it flows through the grow bed where the soil is, where the plants are. Now, the, this is one of the one of the places where the structure is a little bit different from aquaponics, uh, whereas aquaponics is, has a, a media that has a really high flow rate. You've got large pore spaces between the particles. Uh-huh. The water, they, they tend to do a flood and drain. So you fill it up and then drain it down and then fill it up and then drain it down. Because I actually have soil, uh, the particulate sizes are a whole lot smaller. And so while I can't, if I tried flooding it constantly like that, it would just be waterlogged all the time. But one of the advantages of it is whereas aquaponics can't do wicking, the pores are too big for the water to wick up into the upper layers, mine will actually do that, especially as the soil breaks down and the particulate sizes get smaller and smaller, it will actually wick uh, the water up into the upper upper levels of the soil. So instead of having a flat bed that does flood and drain, I actually have a sloped bed, put about a 2% slope on the bed. I think anything up to about 5% would work. And the water flows in one side, flows along the bottom of the soil, wicking up into, into the soil, and then draining out the far side. And so I run the water for only about 15 to 30 minutes, depending on time of year and, and uh, various other factors. And so what I try and do is I try and push as much water in there as I can to kind of force the, the water, not just wicking, but actually saturate the soil and then drain it down. And that pushes the, the bad air. As you have organic matter that's breaking down, it uses up the oxygen in the soil. And so this pushes that bad air out and, and keeps, keeps the soil production aerobic keeps it healthy, keeps it functioning. So, I mean, that's that's the basics of it. In terms of what you would see in my backyard, one of the things that I've pushed for really hard is I've talked to, I was dating a woman at one point, and we went out to see a local aquaponics setup. I, I took her out with me to, to take a look at it, and on the way home, she said, wow, that was really cool, and there's no way we're building one in our backyard. <laughs> It wasn't attractive enough. A lot of aquaponic systems that you see out there tend to be kind of industrial looking. You've got a lot of white plastic, a lot of uh, wiring that's running all over the place, and a lot of you know just industrial looking plastic and metal equipment. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to do what I can to minimize that and, and try and bring the aesthetics to bear. And and in in a way of my main way of doing that was to simplify the design wherever I could. So it made it a whole lot easier to hide the plumbing. The plumbing is almost exclusively hidden uh, in my garden. You just don't see very much of it. I've got my upper tanks are 
IBC totes. I've got four of them. And by the time it gets grown in, which will be another fully grown in in another month, maybe two, these IBC totes will be overgrown with water spinach. And so you won't really even be able to see very well without looking carefully what's underneath them. It just looks like a big lump of green. Oh, cool. So you're talking about those water catchment tanks with the metal, right? Correct. Yeah. It's got the, it's a, it's a white plastic tank that sits in a metal cage. Mm-hmm. And the water spinach is a, is a plant that actually floats on top of the water and grows over the edge. And it's, it's just ridiculously productive in the summer here. So it, it's a vine uh, related to sweet potatoes. So, and it's edible green. So it's, it's a, really a top producer here in the summertime. Is that part, a big component of feeding your fish also? It is because the, the tilapia that I have in those tanks are omnivores. So they will eat mosquito larvae and guppies and, and other things that, that end up in the water. But they also, they, they really get the bulk of their, of their diet from vegetation. And because the water spinach just floats on the top, they constantly work their way around and nibble the roots the root system of the water spinach as it tries to grow. And any part of the leaves that fall into the water, they nibble those off instantly. And it's really funny, you go and look at a a branch, a vine of the water spinach, and the leaf is half nibbled off right at the water line. Because the tilapia just love it. That's awesome. And I also try and grow in my sump tank, I try and keep duckweed growing. Um, and then I can harvest that and, and put it up with the tilapia too. They love, of course, it's you, you have to have a lot of space to grow enough duckweed to fully feed your tilapia because they'll they'll gobble up you know two weeks worth of growth in about 10 minutes gotcha so so what else are you feeding them basically just uh tilapia food okay the local feed store i my eventual goal is to see if i can make something on my own that's not grain based Uh the idea of feeding tilapia grain but it's it's something that's doable right now Back to what I was saying with the with the with the compost bin. So what I do is the first foot of the of the garden is actually a compost bin, and I put in any plant trimmings there, um, the solid waste from the tilapia, which aquaponics tends to struggle with, uh, gets collected in this compost bin. The worms get in there and and harvest, you know, pro- process it down into soil really really rapidly. I've been having this year um, a really huge influx of black soldier fly larvae. Hmm. Um, still trying to figure out the best way to see if I can harvest them to feed them to the chickens. But for right now, I just have thousands of them in the compost bin. And any, you know, I put a pumpkin in there a week ago, and it was barely recognizable after seven days. Wow. I sent my, my fiance over to, to take a picture of it so to see what's going on. She could, she looked directly at it and said, where is it? <laughs> uh, and it was a whole pumpkin. It was just a little soft on the bottom when I put it in. So does that mean that right now with the weather and those flies that your backyard is like kind of infested with flies? No, no, no. These are black soldier flies. Okay. Have, have you heard? Are you familiar with black soldier flies? Well, I hear about them, but I don't know about, I don't have firsthand experience with them. So they, they don't infest. So the black soldier fly lives most of its life cycle as a larva. Got it. That is absolute voracious consumer of organic waste. They actually live in, when, when I flood the soil, they come up in the soil. So they're down even in just my soil. Amazing. And when they actually pupate, they, the adult uh, is, is actually a wasp mimic. It's about an inch long, maybe an inch and a quarter. And they're black and they kind of look like a little wasp. But the, they don't have a sting. They don't even have a mouth. What they do is they find a mate, and they they mate, they lay their eggs, and then they die. And from what I understand, nobody's entirely sure where they go because even with just you know thousands of them in my two functioning compost bins, along with the um, the the soil, at no point do I ever see more. Than, I think I've actually seen like a half dozen flying around at one point, huh. but. You don't, they don't swarm. They don't, they're not pests. They just come out and do their business and go away. I, I think a lot of them just fly off into the neighborhood. I, I really don't know what's happened to them. And I was reading something online by someone who was at, you know, it was a FAQ on a Black Soldier Fly page. And somebody was asking the same question about infestation. And he says, I've never seen more than two or three. And, and maybe that's just an indication of just how many of these things I have that I've seen a half dozen in one day. 
but at no point have I ever seen a hundred of them. I've never seen them swarming. I've never seen them being pests. Gotcha. Well, it sounds like that would be a good food for your chickens. It really is. The larvae are actually, when they decide that it's time to pupate, they kind of self-harvest. They crawl up out of the substrate that they're in, and you've got various, like Biopod, for example, is is a one product that counts on this fact. And so there's a place for them to live, and then it's got these little ramps for, for them to self-harvest right into a bucket so you can feed your chickens. Brilliant. And I haven't quite figured out how to do that in my garden yet, but... Uh, uh, I, I will be poking at it at some point and see if I can come up with something. That's so cool. As for the rest of the garden, um, like I said, aesthetics is something that's, that's really important. Uh, so I've built the garden out of wood. And it basically, uh, in order to be as efficient as possible in the space, I actually set it up, the, the top of the bed's up um, about three feet. Um, so I've actually got the chickens are living underneath the garden in my yard. And this protects them from the brutality of the Arizona sun through the summer. Uh, they've got good shade and, and they can get up under the tanks. Enjoy being under something that's a, a large thermal mass that's temperature controlled. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the goal at every single level is to try and be as efficient as possible. So, yeah, it's, it's, I made it out of wood. I'm, I'm an okay carpenter. I'm not, not a carpenter by profession, but, uh, I'm learning. Well, it's definitely beautiful and amazing to look at. That's for sure. I was hoping for, for hoping for that. I was actually originally thinking that, you know, I, I would build each of the four beds in a slightly different style to kind of demonstrate what can be done. Um, but considering that I'm in a rental property and the design that I've got right now is ended up looking nicer than I thought it would even, is sectional and easy to remove when it's time to move out. You know, I just stuck with the same design. So. It turned out well. I'm I'm happy with it. Wow. So, I guess I'm curious about what else you're growing in there. You mean about what am I growing in the in the garden? Yeah. So like, so it's all kind of working in systems like that, and then downstream, you've got different greens growing. Is that right? I have I have lots more than greens because it's it's soil. I'm not limited to things that aquaponics uh, is limited to. So I did a little experiment with potatoes. Um, unfortunately. I started a little late and the summer heat got to me and, and as soon as it started getting over a hundred degrees, it just fried the potatoes, which sounds tastier than it was. Um, <laughs> uh, so I replanted there with sweet potatoes in the same bed, which are actually, they love the heat. Those, those are doing really well. I've got a bunch of squash that's doing well right now. Uh, chard handles the heat just fine. I had corn for a little bit, which I got I got a little bit of a late start on that again, but uh, I got a modest harvest off of it. Um, I'll replant in the in the fall or in, a, in about a month, actually. What else do I have? Just I, I have a lot of basil's doing well. I've got some peppers. Some of them it got really brutally hot the last couple of weeks, and so I've lost a couple of pepper plants. I've lost pretty much all of my tomato plants are are not doing terribly well right now. Because I don't have any kind of a shade structure, and, and so I'll probably experiment next year with growing beans up a trellis to kind of provide some shade protection for tomatoes and you know some of the other stuff. Uh-huh. Our like yard-long beans apparently do very well in the heat here. Okra is just starting to take off. I uh, so right now it's 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 actually the time of year right now that that most people say you can't grow anything in Arizona. And so what I've got is is either just starting to, to take off because it likes the heat or it's just finished up its, its lifespan because it doesn't like the heat. So I'll be looking to start replanting in a couple of months here um, for the things for a fall garden. And, you know, fall garden is going to be a lot of cold weather stuff. I can get, you know, things that have a pretty fast turnaround, uh, like you can plant um, – corn in late august and get a get a harvest before the frost hits things here so cool yeah phoenix just has its own kind of a weird climate but so far because of the really really high organic content of the soil um, i found that certain plants absolutely thrive uh and other plants just flounder and the big one that flounders is is uh i tried peanuts this year and they like uh they like a, a loose sandy soil, so uh-huh. they grew up to about three inches tall, and and they're they're still thinking about dying on me here. I think they're they're mostly done with that, but um, 
But anything that really likes that rich organic soil tends to do really well. Greens do well. Sweet potatoes just do phenomenal. Okra tends to do well. Squash. I'm still kind of playing with, with getting squash right. I think a lot of it's variety. I've been getting some pretty good growth this year. So anyway, yeah. It's That's cool. About anything, really. I mean, I've seen some of the pictures of it, and I understand the, how it starts and how you're using the inputs from the fish and the compost and downstream. So you've got different beds. And then at what point are you having to, I mean, do you have to take out soil? And how does it work, you know, towards the end of the system? Um, the the way it typically works, are you familiar with the bacterially dominated versus fungally dominated soils concept? Yes. Okay. So. Um, what I found is that when I first build a system, it becomes fungally dominated for about three months, two to three months, um, as the, the decomposing mushrooms settle in and, and start decomposing the soil. They, they push the pH down. My tap water here is about 8.0. The fungus actually drops my pH of the water down to about six and a half. But as the, the mushrooms kind of settle into their lifestyle, towards the end of their life and finish up, then it starts to become more bacterially dominated. And then the pH rises to about 7.6. And so what happens is most of our agricultural crops, the, the things that we grow as vegetables are annuals. The, you know, you've got uh, annuals tend to do very well in a bacterially dominated soil that's got a little bit of a higher pH that's being fed by nitrate. And so they tend to do really well in the actively breaking down soil. Um, now, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that happens is when you first build a system, I've had this happen every time, I'm trying to find ways to reduce the soil growth curve, I guess, if, if for lack of a better term. What happens is, so if you take a plant and you plant it in wood chips, the plant's going to die just about guaranteed. The reason it does that is because as the fungus launches off, it needs to grow into its food source. In order to grow, it needs nitrogen, and it steals that nitrogen from the soil, and the plant has to have the nitrogen or it dies. Mm -hmm. The plant ends up in a nitrogen-depleted state that it just can't survive. Um, now, of course, once once the, the mushroom has completed its life cycle, it starts to rot, and it gives that nitrogen back. It, it becomes part of the ecosystem again. But that doesn't help the plant that's, that's struggling. So that's one of the ways that mine actually does things a little bit differently because there's because of the fish that are in the tank, I'm get this, getting this constant source of nitrogen from the water. And so as the water flows through, those mushrooms are snagging up all of the nitrogen that they can possibly find to try and push their growth into the wood. Now, having big chunky wood slows down that process a little bit. They still steal the nitrogen, but because I've got the nitrogen from the fish, the plants still get what they need. So for the first little bit, it's, it's almost like an aquaponic system because there's not enough soil in there to have a soil ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so for about two to three months, the plants kind of struggle a little bit as they're basically living outdoors in, in aquaponics, which doesn't give them a lot. It doesn't necessarily give them all of the nutrients that they need. Um, it doesn't give them a lot of, there's a lot of the immune system that comes from the soil organisms that, that really boost the plant's immune system. And so they're not necessarily getting that as that plant, as that soil ecosystem is building. They're getting the nutrients that they need roughly so that the growth tends to be a little slow, um, a little bit suppressed in the first couple of months. It still grows. Um, it still grows, you know, probably better than a lot of people would think. But, you know, having been doing this for a couple of years, I know what's possible and it, it's a little slower. But once that soil starts to look like soil, then the, the, the plants just explode because they've got this rich, this nutrient-rich actively decomposing soil that is bacterially dominated, which meets the needs of most of the, the annual plants that we grow for vegetables. Uh -huh. And then as the soil ages, it gets broken down more and more. Now, what I'll do is I'll, I'll haul the, the compost. I actually empty 
the compost bins at the at the beginning of the of the bed about once a month, maybe once every two months. It's they they fill up fairly quickly, um, and then I just scoop everything out and I top dress it around the the garden, and it prov prov provides additional nutrients and additional fuel for the plants. But it does kind of get to a point where the soil has kind of broken down to the point where it's approaching normal yard soil. It's still very, very rich, but for some reason, at least in my first generation prototype, I haven't gotten there in my second, so it may function a little bit differently. But what I found is I could scoop it out and put it in like a container or top dress it as a, like a mulch around, around the garden, and you just get explosive growth outside the system. Uh-huh the system kind of slow down and so what I do is I'll take out up to 50% of the soil and replace it with more organic matter I'll work in more branches and and uh, uh, yard clipping leaves and you know whatever you I mow the grass and put it in there for example mm -hmm. and so you know we'll just work in more material and let it go back to actively decomposing and then you get a boost in plant production again it's like I said, the plants seem to do well when it's actively breaking down. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. I, I think people, even if they weren't going to just focus on the system itself, but having a system that is utilizing fish and composting for the rest of their yard is pretty interesting. The other thing that I haven't really touched on is, is the maintenance aspect. That's the, the place where it really got interesting. Is I, I had 2014, I had a garden that was a year old. My boss sent me for a two-week training seminar um, in Indiana, and I didn't have anybody who could be out there daily gardening, so I just asked a friend to stick their head in and, you know, every two to three days and just make sure that nothing was running dry, nothing was flooding, nothing was overflowing, and she did. I mean, literally, she looked at it for about 20 seconds every two to three days. Um, and then walked away. She never did anything for two weeks in June in Arizona in full sun. Everything just ran itself. I've got, I've really started with the question of, you know, what, what labor needs to be done and who can do it that isn't me. Uh -huh. So the fish are on an automatic fish feeder. The water, watering of the garden is on a timer. The pump runs every couple of hours to push the water through the garden beds and, and make sure that they stayed water, stay watered. The, the sump tank has a, a float valve in it so that I can keep, make sure that it stays, it stays full and doesn't run dry. The, uh, one of the big sources of labor in aquaponics is, is you've got to test the water. The really big operations have equipment in there that tests it constantly. You're testing, testing for pH, you're testing for nitrogen levels, you're testing for nutrient content. And when those numbers get off balance, you've got to fix it really quick because there's, there's mm -hmm. a buffer in the system. Um, what I found is that the living soil actually buffers those nutrients really, really well. And I've, I've actually put a lot of biochar in the system this time around to see if I can increase that buffering capability. The biochar absorbs nutrients from the water, kind of like a carbon filter would, um, but it, it holds them in such a way that the biological organisms in the soil can just climb all over it and collect those nutrients and distribute them back out into the system. Uh -huh. And so what happens is, like in, in aquaponics, if you get a fish that dies, it causes a nitrogen spike, which if you don't take care of it pretty quickly, uh, can actually kill, can cause a massive die-off of the rest of the fish, which you know is fairly catastrophic for the system. It, it throws everything off. I think many, many beginners have experienced that. Yes, and, and I've, I've experienced it as well. My, my fish die-offs almost always happen because I had a power outage or a plug got kicked loose or something like that, and the, the aerator went out when it was 120 degrees. Oh, no. Really, if my, if my aerator stops running for one hour, I lose my fish. Wow. And so, you know, eventually I'd like to get to a point where I'm on solar or something that's going to be a little bit more, you know, this last one, I, I had one about a month and a half ago where the plug, which was plugged in in the laundry room, just decided it wasn't plugged in anymore. It was still plugged in. It just lost its connection. I had to push it in a little bit farther, but it ran like that all night, and I lost about 30 fish. Oh, no. 
fortunately, it wasn't all of my fish, and if I had a hundred. Um, I lost, you know, a handful. So I probably still got 50 to 60 in there. They're still doing fine. So, but anyway, so it's, you get those, those fish die off and sometimes fish just die, uh, you know, so, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, but you know, fish just like to die. Yeah. What'll happen is because one of the disadvantages of my system is because the water's flowing through heavy organic matter, it actually has a color to it. Uh, when you first build a system, uh, the color is dark and kind of cloudy and looks like a strong cup of coffee. But as the system kind of settles in and, and gets its filtering capabilities up and running, the first thing the water does is it becomes, it loses its cloudiness. It becomes clear, but still kind of dark, like a, maybe a strong cup of tea, for example. And then eventually, as it really settles in and, this, and the soil matures, you get to a point where it's like a really, really weak cup of tea but it never fully loses the color. And so if I have a fish that dies, certainly in the earlier stages of that, I'll never see the fish. They'll settle to the uh-huh. rot. You know, if they float to the surface, then I can see them. I can, I can fish them out and deal with it. But they don't all always float to the surface, um, especially with the water spinach in there. Some of them float up and kind of get stuck on the bottom of the water spinach roots. And so what will happen is I'll get these fish that, die and start rotting in the tank and the biological activity in the soil just collects those nutrients and processes them as if nothing ever happened amazing you know i'll be fishing around with a net in my tank sometimes and i come up with bones and it's like oh well that's unfortunate but nothing nothing else died you know i lost one fish and nothing else died the other thing is i as i kind of mentioned is the the ph is you know if you have a system that's got no buffering capability You've got to really watch the pH, especially here. We get all of our, in, in the Phoenix area, we get all of our water from groundwater. And that has high uh, load of nutrients, specifically specifically calcium salts. And so what happens is you pour in water that has a pH of 8.0 to 8.2. Uh, the water evaporates off. The calcium salts leave, stay behind. And, you know, I did briefly an aquaponic, at the very beginning of this, I did an aquaponic system and I was pouring acid into the tank about every other day to the tune of several cups, just trying desperately to keep the pH below. It was trying to, trying to, to, to get up around 8.6, which is really not good for the plants or the fish. Mm-hmm. Whereas as soon as I put in the, the soil, the soil organisms actively balance the pH. And so... Uh, I actually test the water about once every month, every two months maybe, uh, and I always find it within the same range. It's always it, when you first start off, it'll drop the pH a little bit as the as the mushrooms are growing, but then it, it settles up at about seven point five, seven point six, um, which is a really good range for both the plants that are growing and for the fish. That's interesting. I wonder if a regular like traditional aquaponics setup, if the the aqua, um, I guess the aquatic food web, if if that helps to manage the pH, or if they're having to change the, they're having to adjust for it constantly. They have to adjust for it constantly. They've got a really good source of water, like reverse osmosis or rainwater. Then they're probably going to be okay on pH. But there's there's various things that can happen in the water that'll push the pH outside of that range. And, and it's something that it, it's not just the health of the plants and the health of the fish, but it's also the, uh, the nutrients ab- absorption. For example, nitrogen, high, like nitrogen spikes, for example, are particularly toxic at high pH and not so dangerous at low pH. So if you have your fish in a tank that has a pH of, say, 6, and you get a big nitrogen spike, it's not going to be quite as dangerous for the fish as if if it's sitting at seven and a half or eight mm-hmm. or, or not, you know, some fish will deal with a nine uh, pH of, of nine or so. But, but if it gets in, if, if you get a nitrogen spike in there, it's particularly dangerous for them. Um, but also the, there's different nutrients are absorbable in different pH ranges for plants. And, and it's, it's really one of the functions of, um, if you think about the soil, evolutionary what does soil do i mean soil primarily feeds off of plant matter that's falling um and if if you want a lot of food you need healthy plants that are going to produce a lot of plant matter which means that they'll drop a lot of plant matter 
So the soil has a vested interest in maintaining the chemistry of the soil. The soil organisms have a, a vested interest in keep, maintaining the chemistry of the soil in such a way that the plants will thrive and do as, as, as well as possible. Mm-hmm. In this system where the water flows through and comes back around, those soil organisms do a very good job of maintaining the soil chemistry in such a way that the soil is maintaining the water chemistry. Okay, so your system, at the end of it, after the soil absorbs as much water as it can, at the end, all that water is pumped back into the fish tank? Yes. Okay. So the, the, the water flows from, from the sub-tank, it pumps up to the upper tank, where it rises in the tank, flows through the pipe, drains down to the, um, the garden bed. It flows down through the garden bed from one end to the other because of the slope, and then there's a drain at the far end, and so the water drains out of the garden bed into the sump tank. Gotcha. Are you interested in algae at all? I mean, can your a lot of people I've been hearing about are experimenting with feeding their fish algae. Do you know anything about that? I was actually just talking with somebody about that the other day. I think that it might be a little bit of a tricky prospect in my system because if you have aquaponics, what's going to happen is that you have large pore spaces in the growth media for the plants, or or in some cases they have like the raft systems where there's no, you know, you just, the plants are putting their roots down into the water. Mm-hmm. In, in that type of a system, the algae just flows straight on through and comes back around. And there's certainly something there to be said about you know, feeding the tilapia algae because tilapia are actually capable of filter feeding algae right out of the water Ah. the problem in my system is the the soil is much much more effective at capturing absolutely everything that flows through it you know i've got my my short bed here is is uh, 24 feet long the one that i'm currently building is going to be 40 feet long and so any water that flows through there is going to flow through 40 feet of soil. And so it's, it's, and it's going to be filled with biological organisms that are actively filtering everything that they can. And so the, the algae is going to not really get through. It might have to be a separate little tank or something, but I, I wonder if... I, I could grow it um, in a separate tank and then feed it to the fish. But my issue with that is that's, that's more labor for me. Um, yeah, for sure. It's, it's something that I would have to keep track of. Um, the other the other thing is I'd have to time the feeding of the fish correctly. Once I get all four, I've got uh, eventually going to have four garden beds with four four upper tanks that all share a sump tank. And so what I'm working on trying to figure out right now is how to manage automatically the valves so that the pump I've just got one pump that runs up into a bank of valves. And right now I'm manually switching the valves. Actually, right now I'm not manually switching the valves. But once I get the third bed up, I will need to manually switch the valves so that it, it uh, it's flowing enough water into each of the beds. I've got the, the timer that I'm using has eight channels on it. And it will flow. Uh, so I can, I can basically flow each with four beds. I'll be able to flow to each bed twice a day which actually works out pretty well because the, the, the organic soil holds water. It holds water a lot better than uh, just about any hydroponic or aquaponic material other than coconut coir. I mean, it holds it better, but, but you can't cover it with like any material. I think that, I mean, you're probably, are you, do you know how much you're losing to evaporation or how much you're adding into it every day? Um, my system, I, I got a water meter that I hooked in line with my hose a couple of months ago, and it ran for two or three. I think three months before it died on me, which I'm kind of bummed about. But the last time, it, and so this is two beds running. Before it got really hot, it was using about 10 to 12 gallons a day of water. Uh-huh. When the soil, when the water wicks up to the surface, it doesn't quite get all the way to the surface. And so it, it almost acts like a mulch barrier on, on the surface there. So it doesn't lose a lot of water from evaporation. Um, most of the water that it's losing is from evapotranspiration. Uh-huh. Once it gets hot here, because my tanks are out in the sun, they get a little bit of shading from the uh, water spinach, but they, they it's still not enough. I mean, right now, uh, nighttime lows are about 95 degrees. Oh, my God. 
eyes are, are 110, 115. And so what will happen is my water temperature, tilapia are good to about 105, maybe maybe as high as 110. I want to say it was 108 was the number I heard. So I try to keep it below 100, but, you know, with, if they're just dealing with ambient temperatures, they would easily rise over that, that threshold. Uh-huh. actually have built an evaporative cooler for the water that sits on top of the tank and just flows the water through a, a wicking material, an old t-shirt actually, um, with a fan blowing on it. And so I'm getting the cooling for my tanks that keeps them down. You know, when it's really this hot, it, it keeps them down to 85 to 90 degrees. I do that through water loss. Right. But even with that, still using, you know, it just stopped um, at the end of November. And I was, I ended up using, I think, 16 gallons a day using evaporative cooling that's amazing not much no it's not it's what a long shower is basically how much water (laughs) right so i want to say i i I saw and it was like a load of laundry is depending on your washing machine somewhere around 20 to 30 gallons yeah even if i was capturing my laundry water i still wouldn't be using it all Mm -hmm. so that's so cool well awesome i this is great information i'm really curious like what are you so you're an engineer i didn't ask you anything about that but uh, do you, do you want to talk about your personal work and how you ended up or what your goals are with this? That, that might be a whole other podcast. I've got some, okay. some goals on that one. I am a civil engineer. I'm trying to find a way to make this work. Something that I'm certainly open to consulting with people. If you're local, I can help build systems. That's kind of where I'm going with the business right now. Long-term what I'm hoping to do is, is revolutionize how we produce food in, in urban areas by focusing on the aesthetic aspects of, of a garden, something that, you know, is, is not going to be an eyesore in your backyard. That's going to be, you know, even your average soccer mom's going to say, hey, look at this. It's really cool. And, and then focusing on the, the labor saving aspect of it, you know, something that you come home from a long day and, and got to head straight out and take the kids to soccer and dance recital and, you know, everybody's sort of rushing around. You don't really have two hours a day to be out there watering and weeding and, and taking care of things. So having something that pretty well takes care of itself and all you really got to do is, is plant it and harvest it, I think would be, would be definitely a bit more attractive to a whole lot of people. People are using these big suburban backyards, making use of that urban sprawl for something productive. Then we start getting into a decentralized system of agriculture. We can find monetary incentives for people to produce more food than they can eat. Um, If you've got a network of people maintaining it, you can use that same network of people to collect and sell the excess produce and give the benefits of that back to the homeowner. And so then you start to really create something that can can make a change. Making the world a better place, climate change is another thing that people are, are interested in being a part of, of helping. And my garden is, you know, according to my calculations and the best information I've been able to find, once I get my garden soil full and all of the beds built, I'll get all the soil full, all of it running the way it's supposed to be running, I'm looking at sequestering about 1.8 tons of carbon in a thousand square feet in my backyard. And I think that'll take two years, maybe, maybe three years. But if we assume it takes two years, you know, it's like 1.8 tons doesn't sound like a lot, but you look at, you know, our best carbon sequestration method right now is holistic range management, which scientific studies are coming in right now saying that it can sequester between two and 13 tons of carbon per acre per year, which is some really good numbers. But if you run the numbers on my 1.8 tons of carbon in two years and a thousand square feet, it actually worked out to be more like 39 tons of carbon per acre per year. I was going to say, it's like a big difference. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's something that works. It's my little backyard garden isn't going to make enough of a difference, but if I can work with a lot of people out there and help them get better nutritional, you know, better quality, higher nutritional foods for their family, possibly even if they've got, if they've got enough resources in terms of space and a little money up front to to build it out a bit, you know, and for record, for the, for the, for the record, you know, not counting the, the labor side, just the materials cost, you know, I've got about, once I get this 
third bed built, I'll have about 350 square feet of garden space in my backyard. And it costs me in the neighborhood of about $4,500 for in materials. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that was because I put chickens under it. You know, you become a whole, a whole lot more efficient in materials when you don't build the whole thing ex, an extra foot and a half tall so that you can run chickens underneath it. But anyway, so the, the you know, if, if you can have, help people have better food for their family, more convenient because there's zero food miles. You literally walk out your back door and go see what's for dinner tonight, possibly a little additional income. You know, you're actually finding a way for people to make a real difference while improving their life, not having to give as much up. Then you start getting into incentives for people to start building this out. And once you get a network of enough people doing this, then you start sequestering some serious carbon you know, you're using a lot more vegetation with relatively low water use, so you can start cleaning the air, you can start reducing urban heat island effect because that sun is beating down on plant leaves, not on concrete. There's a whole lot of benefits that you can get if we start rolling this sort of thing out. I really like it. I like the potential various business models too. I mean, that's something that people can be a part of, so it's, it's like a good, I guess, a tribal spirit. Yeah which you could probably get going and very cool. Well, the people who are reaching out to me seem to be people who are interested in exactly the type of thing that you're doing. They're trying to transform their backyard or a piece of land and do the right thing for our future. Thanks for listening. Next week, we will visit Sam Lopez, an urban homesteader in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with amazing information to share about crop rotation, no-till, composting and his experience farming in the middle of the city i hope the get in my garden podcast has inspired you to continue your learning to continue your hobbies projects and businesses related to natural farming hydro and aquaponics bees fungi soil and the soil food web microbes plants and however you are involved in entertaining yourself in a way that benefits the earth and our future and again follow the show at get in my garden on instagram to see pictures of what we discuss here and to uh, learn about upcoming episodes also visit getinmygarden.com and make sure you sign up for the email list which will soon include supplemental and special content or freebies from our guests as well as articles or other interesting things i share with my close friends i hope you'll subscribe to the get in my garden podcast wherever you listen from and leave a positive review if you want to support the show